is gone, come to that class if you're in that class. We'll be in there uh, in his office uh, for Sunday school time. We are in the middle uh, of a series, a sermon series called Blueprints for the Good Life. Um, and we actually are in the middle of it. We are through five commandments. Um, so it's time for a midterm exam. So uh, can you name the first five commandments? And can you name them in order? I got a hundred dollars. No, i just kidding. I don't. Uh, <laughs> could you name, like, if you were thinking, I'm like, okay, let's see. Let's pull this first one. Oh, yeah, no other gods. Okay. What's the second one? No idols. Okay. Now it's about words. No taking God's name in vain, right? Or don't misuse his name. What's the, what's the fourth one? Honor the Sabbath. Rest, right? And the fifth one that Jake preached about last week. Honor your father and mother. So then, <clears throat> um, we come today to a really short one. In Hebrew, it's only two words. So pay attention. You might miss it. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17, says, you shall not murder. This is the word of the Lord. January 14th, 24th, 27th, February 9, 13, 18, 20, 26, and 27, March 5, 6, 8, 9, 18, 31, April 3, 9, 16, 17, 19, 22, and 27, May 3, 7, 10, 23, June 5, 6, 11, 22, 24, July 1, 3, 20, 25, August 2, 11, 12, 14, 17, 27, 28, September 15, 16, 17, 19, 28. Those are the dates of the 53 murders that have occurred this year in the city of Richmond. Why does God give this commandment? He gives this commandment because he is the creator of life, the giver of life, and he's teaching us that life is intrinsically valuable. Every human life is intrinsically valued because it's created by God. He's saying, don't kill because I've given life. And when you do, you're destroying his art, his masterpiece. Murder destroys God's image in the one whose life is taken, and it defaces God's image in the one who takes life. So the title of the sermon today, you can put that on the screen, is Do Not Murder, Live Peacefully, and Preserve Life. As you look at the Ten Commandments, and as we named the first five, and then we read the sixth, and if you were to peruse the rest of them, I'm guessing that you would uh, look through them and think, all right, so this one, you know, I've struggled with many, but this one I'm probably okay, I probably haven't flunked. What if I told you that it's very likely that you have broken this commandment in more ways than you think and much more often than you believe is possible? Do not murder, but live peacefully and preserve life. Well, how do we know if it's more serious than at first reading of two Hebrew words, no murder? Well, let's look at it. So we're going to start by defining terms. First, the definition. What is the meaning of the word murder? That's the first point we're going to look at today. And so 
the meaning of the word. You can see it there on the screen. I'll get to that. You can leave that up there, but I'll get to that word in a second. I want you to know there's several different words in Hebrew that talk about killing, okay? And this is important, and you'll see why in a second. So, for instance, hikah is to strike or kill in battle. Hemet is to put to death. Harag is to kill. Tabah is to butcher. Zabah is to kill animals for a sacrifice. But this word, ratzak, is to take innocent life. So this command about murder is taking life unjustly or taking innocent life. And it can be done intentionally or unintentionally. And one of the ways we know that is from the way it's talked about in the Old Testament, in the Torah, and what Moses wrote down for us in various places. I'm just going to take you to one to show you in Numbers. You're like, you know, if you've ever tried to read the Bible through an ear and you're like, you get the Numbers and you're like, some of you are like, you got the Numbers? Um, you don't even get, like, you're like, what? <laughs> right? But there's some good stuff in Numbers. So Numbers, chapter 35, verses 20 and 21. Let's look at those, uh, that verse. If anyone with malice aforethought shoves another or throws something at them, at them intentionally so that they die, or if out of enmity one person hits another with their fist so that the other dies, that person is to be put to death. That person is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when they meet. So, if it's premeditated, if it's, it's thought out and it's planned, right, that's, that's premeditated murder. But then the, the verses go on in 22 to 25 of the same chapter there, and it talks about another scenario. But if without enmity someone suddenly pushes another or throws something at them unintentionally or without seeing them, drops on them a stone heavy enough to kill them and they die, then since that other person was not the enemy and no harm was intended, the assembly must judge between the accused and the avenger of blood according to these regulations. The assembly must protect the one accused of murder from the avenger of blood and send the accused back to the city of refuge to which they fled. The accused must stay there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with holy oil. So what's being said here, right, is that if it's unintentional, if it's negligent, the person is allowed to live, but they have to go live in a city of refuge where they must stay until the high priest dies, and after that time, they can be free. So this word is used in both those scenarios, where it's murder, whether it's voluntary or involuntary, the taking of an innocent life. What this command does not prohibit is self-defense, capital punishment, or war. There's different words used in those cases and different prescriptions for them. <clears throat> so, for instance, self-defense is, uh, in each of these cases, one of the reasons this is not... Uh, doesn't apply, this word isn't used for those, is because the person is not innocent, right? You're being attacked. Life is being taken. And so this, it's not just. It's unjust, and so it has to be stopped. So, for instance, in self-defense, if you're protecting your own life, somebody's trying to take your life, then you have the right to defend your own life as value of life. In, in Exodus 22, it talks about this. Verses 2 and 3, let's put those on the screen. By the way, we're going to look at lots of verses today because... The verse that I'm supposed to explain to you is two words. Don't murder. You got it? Okay, so this is why we're looking at some more of them, okay? So if a thief is caught breaking in at night and has struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed, right? He's protecting his own life. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. Anyone who steals must certainly make restitution, but if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for their theft. So the scenario is... Somebody's coming in your house, breaking in at night, and you're not sure what's going on. They're a threat to you, 
And like if you, if you defend yourself and they die, you're not guilty of murder. But if it's during the day and you can see what's going on and you see that the person's a thief and you can identify them to authorities later, you should let the person live and escape and flee and then have them arrested and go face the judges. Right? That's what's being said there. So, this is why we have laws in our society like don't shoot a fleeing person. And for God's sake, do not shoot people when they turn around in your driveway. That happened last year. A cheerleader, a high school girl, was turning around in a driveway. Somebody thought, somebody's trespassing, decided to fire some shots. That is not self-defense. It is not a just taking of life. It's murder. But the death penalty, what about that? Well, the death penalty may preserve the value of life in society by punishing those who are life destroyers. And Israel was told to do that. And in Romans 13.4, Paul talks about the authorities of Rome that can do that. We can put that verse on the screen as well. I think it's in there. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. What Paul is saying is, don't go around executing vigilante justice. God has appointed authorities, governing authorities, to take care of that. Let them do their job. And beware, because they don't bear the power of the sword for nothing. So we can debate whether capital punishment should be allowed in the USA or not, you know. And there's probably arguments on both sides of that. But what this command is talking about does not forbid capital punishment. War is another thing it does not forbid. The word used here is not used when killing in war. War is a government defending its people from the attacks of another that is unjust in the taking of their citizens' lives, such as in, in modern news, right, Ukraine and Israel. All kinds of things, though, still have to be considered, even in war, to protect and value life, right? There's ethics to it, which seems crazy, but it's true that because of the value of life, there's considerations to the ways, the ways wars are waged and fought to try to have the, most, the minimal amount of loss of life. And so that's one of the reasons you don't target civilian targets. You target military targets, right? Um, and there's many more things like that that we don't have time to go into. So the value of life is important, even in war, but this command is not forbidding war. It's not forbidding self-defense, and it's not forbidding capital punishment. We could talk about those things in, in other ways. What does it mean for you then? You're saying, okay, well, that's not what it is. What about me? What does it mean for me? Let's, let's go on to think about that. The second point here is application. How are we going to apply this to our lives, you and me? So when a command forbids something, it is also affirming the opposite. So to say, hey, don't take life is also to affirm the value of life and the dignity of life. Life is to be protected and preserved. And so one of the ways that we need to understand this for our daily life is intentional killing is murder. And there's a slide here for that. Intentional killing is murder. We see this early on. As soon as sin enters the world, as soon as Adam and Eve turn and disobey and go against God's ways, everything starts to come undone. Things go wrong. Um, and then they have kids. And you're like, yeah, I've had kids too. I know how that goes wrong. No, just kidding. Kids are great. You're lovely. Seriously, kids, you're wonderful. Life is fantastic. Adam and Eve are kids, and one of the kids gets really mad at the other kid. Cain gets mad at his brother Abel when they've grown up. 
kind of fighting age. And they're making offerings. And Abel's offering is better to God for some reason than, than Cain's offering is. And Cain gets mad. And, and we see in Genesis 4, verses 6 through 8, it says this, The Lord says to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you. Because you're angry, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So he heard the words of God and he said, no, I'm angry and I'm getting my vengeance. And he takes his brother out to the field and kills him. Intentional killing is murder and it happens in all kinds of ways. We could talk about mass murder, like genocide, right? The killing of whole people groups because they're hated or they need to be removed. Such as when the Cherokee Indians and all Indians were pushed west of the Mississippi River. And in doing so, half of the Cherokee died on the Trail of Tears. Or when Stalin told Ukraine, the wheat part of the country, right? And mandated that that food go to other people first. And in so doing, starved Ukrainians, 7 million Ukrainians died. Or Hitler killed 6 million Jews. Or in the 1970s, the killing fields of Cambodia. Or in 1994, in Rwanda, the Hutus killed 800,000 Tutsi people. 10% of the population, simply because they like it, and they did all that in 100 days. In 2003, Darfur, Sudan, nearly half a million dead. Some have said that Hamas's endgame is to take all the land to get rid of the Jewish state and people. I don't doubt that. I don't know that for sure. But we know they want land. We know that Israel doesn't want to give the land. Right? Mass murder. Not just genocide, but terrorism that then is through terror killing large groups of people, innocent people, walking into schools and shooting kids obviously violates this command. And then there's just regular old murder, as if that's not a big problem, 53 of them this year, right? So that was through the end of September. There's been, we're almost to the end of another month. There's self-murder of suicide. When you come to hate or despair so much to see your own life of no value. These are hard times. I mean, statistics tell us most people think about or contemplate suicide. And then some attempt suicide. Too many. There's abortion, killing the life of an unborn child. And there are a few exceptions, the life of the mother, right? Like you have to preserve life. There's euthanasia, the killing of people near the end of their life, but aren't at the end of their life yet. The Netherlands passed laws in the 1970s, which was the first Western country to do so, to allow euthanasia. That is, when people aren't naturally dying yet, but they're close to the end to say, I want to die, it's my time to go, put me out of it. 
Now, in the Netherlands, some insurance companies refuse to pay for life-extending treatment, but they will pay for life-ending treatment. Is that because that's how you make healthcare affordable or profitable? Or is it the value of life? I want you to understand as I talk about all these different things that I think the Bible talks about and says these are forms of murder. And there's a slide for this. That the biblical value is to preserve and protect life. The image of God from the womb to the tomb. That all of life is valuable. Every part of life. Because you and I, all humans, are created in God's image and we have dignity and must be treated so. Whether you're Christian or not does not matter. All have value. Malcolm Muggeridge spoke about this very problem 45 years ago at the University of San Francisco. He said, if people are only considered to be economic entities whose value is measured by the quality and or quantity of their productivity, then what conceivable justification is there for maintaining at great expense and difficulty mentally and physically handicapped people and elderly? I know that as sure as I can possibly persuade you to believe, governments will find it impossible to resist the temptation to deliver themselves from this burden of looking after the sick and the handicapped by the simple expedient of killing them off. He continues, now this, in fact, is what the Nazis did, not always through slaughter camps, but by a perfectly coherent decree with perfectly clear conditions. In fact, delay in creating public pressure for euthanasia has been due to the fact that it was one of the war crimes cited at Nuremberg. Now listen to how he ends this. So for the Guinness Book of Records, you can submit this. That it takes just about 30 years in our humane society to transform a war crime into an act of compassion. Because the value of life matters, he says. That's only the intentional killing part of this command. Let's talk about the involuntary killing, what is called manslaughter, because this command also covers that involuntary thing, as we read from Numbers in the beginning, right? So in the Bible, there's places where it talks about and says, hey, if your ox is known to gore a person, like, in other words, your ox, you know, took its horn and ran somebody through and killed them, like, oh no, and you got to make restitution, but, but if your ox is known to do that and then gets out of a pen and does it again, now you as the owner become guilty of murder for not controlling your ox. This is why we have laws like for things, for example, like pit bulls. If a pit bull is known to attack and the person doesn't control their animal, right, and attacks, the owner gets held responsible for that because of the value of life. Or the Bible prescribes for people when they build their houses, one of the requirements they had to do on their roof, they had to put a parapet around their roof, a fence, if you will. Why did they have to do that? Because it was a flat roof. They didn't have roofs like we have, right? In the Middle East, they had flat roofs. They would use those for drying and things up there, maybe sunbathing, whatever. I don't know, but it was flat. So you could go up on the roof. So that you didn't fall off, there had to be a wall around it. It's why at the front of the balcony there has to be a wall. So you guys don't trip over the edge and fall. It's why when you build a house, 
and you put a pool up. Often you're required to put a fence around it so that kids don't wander into it and drown unintentionally because it values life. It's why the Virginia State Police require you to have an inspection, even if you don't like it. Be careful. Right? Brakes are important. If they don't work, you don't stop and you can kill somebody. That basic inspection to make sure your vehicle functions well is a safety issue for other human life, to value human life. Drunk driving. That's why it's a crime. Because you're impaired and you severely injure others or kill others. Or distracted driving on a phone. I see this all the time. I regularly have to honk at people who are crossing the line because they're looking at their phone coming at me. What on here is more important than a life? Seriously. If you're looking at, got to see the latest TikTok or read the email from your boss while you're driving, don't. Because if you do that and hit somebody and cause serious harm or kill them, their blood is on your hands. This is one of the ways this commandment applies. Violence toward others to injure them. The bully who just wants to beat kids up on the playground. Does this command apply? I remember when I was ten, about 10 years old, maybe 11. I had a soccer game. I was leaving the soccer field. Um, and I'm walking off and boom, get hit in the back of the head with a rock. And I turn around and there's two kids looking at me like angry eyes and laughing. And they run away. And I'm scared, I'm frightened, so I just keep walking and I'm bleeding from the back of my head, but I was okay. Why did they do that? I have no idea. Why did they have that amount of hate that they're like, we're going to throw rocks at you? Is that a violation of this command? You say, well, no, because the command is not to take life. I didn't die, they didn't take my life. Fair enough, but wait. What does the Bible say in relation to this command? Because the other thing it says is, well, yes, there's intentional murder and there's involuntary killing and murder. The inclination to kill begins with malice in the heart. Remember Jesus' words? It's in the Old Testament too. Let's look. We're going to look at three passages first. Leviticus 19 Verse 16 and following, it says, do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. That's anything that endangers it, right? I am the Lord, okay? Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Why does that come right after endangering life? Because endangered life starts with hate. That you want to do something, right? Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay? Matthew 5, 21 verse and, uh, and 22. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. It's referring back. You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, you fool, 
is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And then John, Jesus' disciple, writes in his letter late in his life, 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. The Bible makes it clear that even the hate and the intent is to want someone's life gone and is murderous. That's what it's saying. That it drives straight to the heart. It's wishing someone dead. And Jesus says unless you repent of that, that hatred in your heart, then you're in danger of hell. We lose our tempers, we hold grudges, we gossip, we kill by neglect, by spite, and by jealousy. Sometimes kids actually say this. I wish I never had a brother or sister. It's to say that you wish they weren't alive or weren't born or were dead. Murder in the heart. Adults do the same thing. I hate that person. Man, I hate that person. It's murder in your heart. That political opponent, that enemy... Oh, I hate them. I hate that candidate. Or I hate that one. I hate both of them. Whatever. We kill each other on social media with character assassination. That's what it's called. Because we're killing. When we're trying to damage somebody else's name and reputation. We live in such a great divide where people are more opposed vitriolic and isolated than ever before, or at least than I, ever before the, in my lifetime that I remember. We've seen families split over politics, over COVID, over inheritance disputes, and bitterness turns to hate and it runs deep within us. And Jesus here is stressing the importance of reconciliation in place of anger and hate. Now, I'm not going to put these verses on the screen for you, but you can look them up. Right after what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you if you're angry, you're committing murder. The next verse, verses 23 and 24, he goes on and talks about how you apply that. He uses the word therefore, linking that statement to what the next thing is, and he says, therefore, if you're in church and you're giving your offering at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister is angry with you, you should leave your gift there at church, because you're still going to give it, and go and find your brother or sister and be reconciled to them first, then return and come to church. Ah, what? Jesus, are you serious? you telling me, that if I got a beef with somebody or they got a beef with me, that that's so serious it's like murder? Apparently, I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. That's his words, not my words. He is saying that the act of murder starts in our hearts and that each of our hearts is murderous. That when we're so angry, we just want to slap somebody or hit them. We're so angry driving down the road because you got cut off, that you want to speed up and cut them off the road and hope they run off and slash and slam into a tree. Those thoughts, you've thought that, right? I'm not the only one that's thought that. <laughs> Those thoughts are murderous thoughts. Why does Jesus say that you need to do this work of reconciliation? And interestingly, 
you know, when you're going to the temple, in this case, in the, or to church, to worship weekly, you have an opportunity to say, you know what, I got to get right with somebody. I, I've been putting it off. I got to go get reconciled. Why, why? Why is this such a big deal? Because if you bottle it up, it'll become bitterness, which will turn to hating that person, or else maybe you'll blow up and say hateful words or turn it into acts of violence. And you have to deal with anger when it's there. And Jesus is saying, deal with it. Go be reconciled. Go be made right. Don't murder. Don't hate. Live peacefully. So let me just recap where we've been thus far, okay? After digging into a two-word verse and looking at the rest of the Bible, it becomes clear that, ouch, it's stepping on my toes. Or it should be clear that you and I have violated this commandment much more often than we think. Some of you may have murdered another. Some of you, I know, have regretted having an abortion. Some of you have contemplated or attempted suicide. Some have killed another in drunk driving. Some have been violent to others who were innocent simply because you didn't like them. Some have hated others because you envy them. Maybe slandered them. Some hate others when you think, I wish they were dead. Life would just be easier. Maybe to an enemy. Maybe to an older person. Some of you hate others because you refuse to go and be reconciled or you refuse to forgive. We could go on and on, but the point here is that each and every one of us has broken this commandment in our thoughts, in our feelings, and quite likely in our actions. And Jesus tells us it's all murderous against life, against the image of God and people. And if you're thinking right now, Pastor, I'm pretty sure you said this sermon series is about the good life. I don't feel very good. And let me assure you, it is about the good life. Because if we are to heed the command, what it does is it says, life matters. And we value it in every single person. And our community changes because of the way we then value life. And that's why it's important. That's why it's good. There is one last thing that does need to be said. That is, we've talked about the definition of what this means. We've talked about the application. But we need to remember redemption. That is, what hope do you and I have if we're such murderous people? What hope is there for us if we've broken this command? You may remember some key figures in the Bible. By the way, this is why reading the Bible to say, look how good and nice everything is and just be like these people is an insufficient and, and inaccurate way to read the Bible. The Bible is not giving you all these people that are really good to say, hey, be just like them. It's giving you the story of people that are messed up, but God is good and seek him. What kind of people am I talking about? Moses. You know, Moses who wrote the words of that command that God gave to him. Well, God wrote it on the command and Moses took it down to the people, right? Moses who led them out of Egypt. Moses who killed that guy when he was beating that slave and had to run and hide. Moses the murderer? Yes, Moses the murderer. 
David, King David, great guy, beats the giant. Yeah, and then he steals the wife of one of his commanders, sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant, and he's like, shoot, what do I do? Orders the commander to go to the front, troops withdraw, make sure that he's murdered in battle. David, murderer. He knows this, he feels it. We know it from Psalm 51, verse 14, when he writes after this. He says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God my Savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Or what about Paul, the apostle who planted churches and wrote like so many books of the New Testament? Murderer. What did he do before he got converted? He was killing Christians. We're given accounts of that in the Bible where he's overseeing their death and killing them. Each one forgiven by the amazing grace of God. Paul writes of this grace in 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 to 17, when he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. You see what Paul's saying? I'm a murderer, but I was shown mercy. Because this is the heart of God for sinful people to say, you have so blown it, but I will come to you and redeem you. As you have been redeemed from the condemnation of this command, pray for Jesus now to transform you to be able to keep this command in new ways. Jesus, the Redeemer. Jesus, the Savior. Think about this for a second. How does Jesus relate to this command? Right, we know he comes and he fulfills things. Fulfills all things. We know he perfectly keeps the law. So Jesus, as the perfect Savior, keeps this command. He's the victor. We know that in his life, here on earth, he walked around and he protected life. Protected people in the boat, in the storm, when the boat was sinking healed people and restored life, raised people from the dead. He himself was raised from the dead. Jesus is the victor. As the sinless Savior, Jesus is the victor of the sixth commandment. But that's not all. As the sacrificial Savior, Jesus is the victim of the sixth commandment. He suffers as he's hated, assaulted, Spit on, hit, tortured, beaten, and murdered. His death is planned. They hate him, and he is innocent. He is the victim. He is the one who's oppressed. And with all his power and everything that he could do, what does he do with all that power when he's oppressed? From the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The words to you and to me with murderous hearts is from the one being murdered. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. So you and I, yeah, we get the good life because we've been redeemed by the Savior. And he now works in us to transform us in the good life, to live peacefully and preserve life. That's what this commandment's about. 
Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be people who keep commandments. We also confess that, Lord, when we study the depth of them, we often break them. So we give you great thanks and we rejoice that you are our Savior and that you are the victor. That you have overcome. That because of your perfect life in our place and your sacrificial death, we are good with you. We've been covered by you, redeemed by you, rescued and saved. So would you work in our hearts a growing love for you, a growing love for the value and dignity of life? Would you help us to live peacefully and preserve life? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The ushers are going to come forward.